El 25 de julio de 1898, los Estados Unidos invadió Puerto Rico durante la guerra hispanoamericana. Puerto Rico se convirtió en colonia de los Estados Unidos. En la década de los 40, la Marina Norteamericana expropió 26.000 de las 33.000 cuerdas de vieques, una élite hermana de Puerto Rico. Miles de viequenses fueron obligados a emigrar a Santa Cruz o a los Estados Unidos o fueron asignados a vivir en lo que quedaba de Vieques. El territorio de Vieques está dividido. La Marina mantiene un almacén de municiones en el oeste y en el este se encuentra el campamento García, zona de las prácticas militares. El pueblo vive en el medio. Un alto porcentaje de la población puede estar contaminada con químicos tóxicos. Además, el desastre del medio ambiente es innegable. Vieques sufre de una tasa de cáncer de un 27% más alto que en el resto de Puerto Rico. El 19 de abril de 1999, David Sanes, un empleado civil de la Marina, murió al caer dos bombas de 500 libras. Luego de un año de resistencia, el 4 de mayo del 2000, sobrevivir marinos, aguaciles y agentes federales, entre otros, invadieron a los campamentos de desobediencia civil y afectaron a más de 200 personas. Yo le digo a los viequenses y a todos los puertorriqueños que nos armemos de valor, de valentía y luchemos por lo que es nuestro, porque esto no es de los americanos, ni de los japoneses, ni de los chinos, es de los puertorriqueños y basta ya. Si hay que dar la vida, se da la vida, pero hay que parar esto ya y yo estoy disponible y dispuesta a hacerlo.
minutos de la, de la construcción deportiva que están haciendo ahí. Eh, y de ahí, allí, son como tres minutos más. Yo me imagino, diez minutos, diez minutos estamos allí. Bueno, claro, cuando bajen, vamos para el campamento de justicia. desea seguir vendiendo armas y probando armas y Vieques es el sitio donde tienen 10.000 ciudadanos americanos como conejillos de India para eh, ver cómo se usan y cómo eh, funcionan estos armamentos cuando quedaban como 5 minutos para ellos llegar yo cogí unas cadenas que yo tenía, unas cadenas gruesas y me las puse en el cuello y le puso un candado bien ancho, simbolizando la esclavitud del pueblo de Vieques con la Marina. Me parece inmoral que se pretenda hacer un referéndum donde la gente, gente de Vieques no tiene la verdadera opción de lo que ellos quieren hacer. Nosotros los veteranos no estamos de acuerdo en que las fuerzas a las que nosotros servimos honrosamente estén agrediendo a nuestros pueblos en estos momentos. Las opciones son entre que te sigan bombardeando por tres años con bala inerte o te bombardeen durante toda la vida con balas vivas. Y más humillante que todo, y más inmoral que todo, es que te ofrezcan dinero a cambio. 
porque eso va contra la dignidad del bioquense y del puertorriqueño. Nosotros estamos totalmente indignados por esa situación y por eso vamos a utilizar todos los medios pacíficos para protestar por la situación de Vieques y uno de ellos es entregar las medallas. Todo el camino, todos esos campos de tiro, saqué unas fotos preciosas de los arrecifes, de los acantilados y unas fotos horrorosas de la destrucción que estos bandoleros han hecho en esta isla y que no habrá dinero, maquinaria, ni equipo de trabajo que limpie la porquería, el veneno, la chatarra que estos sinvergüenzas han echado en nuestras playas. Que yo no sé cómo hay gente que todavía los defiende y, lo, y, lo, y, lo, y los apoya, porque no habrá forma de que ellos paguen el crimen que han hecho con esta isla. Antes de que pasara todo esto y empezara a ser civil y empezara a protestar, ellos se sentían el bombardeo en las casas, las casas mías se estremecían, las casas de las bombas, se, casi no se puede dormir porque el, el bombardeo es continuo, eso no yo no sé, eso es por la noche. Después que, que el médico le dijo que Indio te estaba contaminado con uranio. Él me decía, mami, no subas para allá arriba, porque después quién me cuida. O sea, eso, mira, eso es terrible para una madre. Mi hermana, Anacida Sánchez, es joven, murió de cáncer. Para mí es culpa de, también de los bombardeos de la Marina. Mi abuela, eh, José Santiago, murió de cáncer. Para aquella época se desconocía que estaban haciendo pruebas con uranio, con napalo, contra la gente naranja. Entonces... Eso yo pensé últimamente, yo dije, ya, diablo, aquí estamos todos chavales. La gente en los carros, desde ahí hacia arriba, es dentro de una nube de polvo, tragando polvo. Las picó esa atrás, los nenes y todo, toda una nube de polvo, imagínate. Por ahí para arriba no hay brea ni nada, eso es tierra pelada. Eso era la nube de polvo y yo no tragando de polvo, nosotros estamos torchados. La, la, más, la más que ha conmovido al mundo es el cáncer. Que dice que todo que todavía que está completamente con cáncer. Y eso es mentira. Eso no es cierto. Y también del cáncer, que, que todo el cáncer que hay aquí en Vieques lo causa la marina, también es mentira. O sea, aquí hay muchos factores que nada más, que no, no es toda la marina. Aquí nosotros sufrimos de un hospital que no está preparado. Una isla que está completamente separada de la isla grande. Nosotros los días que se tenemos que coger una lancha o un avión para ir a atendernos con buenos doctores. So in Esperanza was one, two, three, about six places, six of these places, right in Esperanza. So they used to hang out there and drink. And when they used to get drunk, they used to go and arrest the ladies. Me ha contado mi madre y me contó mi abuela que ellos este, fueron arrojados. Ellos fueron, primeramente, cuando le fueron a entregar la carta de expropiación, era tienes 24 días. 24 horas, perdón, para salir de aquí. Si no sales de aquí en 24 horas, te vamos a tumbar la casa. Esas mujeres, imagínate, nosotras las mujeres siempre tenemos la carga mayor en todos los hogares. Y, y somos las que tenemos que tener la fortaleza, inspirarla para que el hombre la, 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 pueda, la pueda trabajar. Que vengan cuando dice la nada. 
estamos escondiendo nuestra libertad.
pero la paz y la justicia en viejos continúan y es irreversible. Los invasores de la isla arena, la marina de vieja, no queremos más trueques, los que buscan problemas, los invasores de la isla arena. We're just going to continue with the with the actual plan. Uh, thanks for being here, and thanks for definitely for yeah still be here. Everybody knows the reason. Um, also, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that Reverend Jackson was here since 10:30. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So for those of you wondering in the other in the other room, yeah, that I mean we definitely had a a, a real problem. Okay, well, good morning. I'm Ramon Cruz. On behalf of Acción Puertorriqueña and the organizing committee, we want to welcome you, in particular to our distinguished group of scholars and activist leaders from Puerto Rico. They're around that corner. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and of course to Reverend Jackson. Um, to the opening ceremony of this symposium, which from the very beginning we wanted to deliberately ask a provocative question. Puerto Ricans, second class citizens in our democracy? This symposium was organized by a diverse group of undergraduate and graduate students, faculty and administrators from several departments of the university, in order to fill a void that we perceived in our curriculum. We want to explore, debate, and learn about some of the main issues affecting Puerto Rican society today in the United States as well as in the island. What does it mean to be a Puerto Rican in the 21st century? Latin Americans with U.S. passports? Citizens without proper representation? Civilians bombed by the same Navy in which they serve? What have been the trade-offs and the negotiations that Puerto Ricans have had to confront since the Treaty of Paris of 1898 that made Puerto Rico a U.S. territory? It is impossible to answer these questions to the full extent that they deserve. However, we hope to reach some preliminary answers by discussing the relationship among migration, education, citizenship, and law, and by examining how the struggle for the future of Vieques is emblematic of the unique conditions that frame our rights as citizens. We are fully aware of the circumstances that bring us here today. Even though we encountered some obstacles, as we saw today, we found many helping hands. We will not be here today if it were not for the crucial help of President Tillman and the program in Latin American Studies. Also, if it were not for the struggle of our many predecessors, and members of other communities who have been categorized in the past as second-class citizens. To them, all our gratitude. We must be thankful also because in these times of understandable fears and also paranoia, we can speak about this subject, and I had written, in a peaceful and tolerant setting. Of course, that we're in doubt, but definitely we're here, and the Reverend wanted to proceed. So... Yet, we must not forget that in other parts of the world, some people cannot speak because of the sounds of bombs. I'm not talking only about people living half of world away, but also about the people of Vieques, who wake up half of the year to the sound of bombs falling only 10 miles from their homes. To them, our deepest respect, solidarity, and hope that we will find together a prompt solution to their problems. I hope that you join, will join us during the rest of the conference. Thanks for being here, honestly. Thanks, Reverend Jackson, President Tillman, Professor Mills, and all of you for being here today. Now I'm greatly honored to introduce to President Shirley Tillman. I am very happy to be here today to welcome all of you to this uh, very important conference, Puerto Ricans, Second Class Citizenship in Our Democracy. This morning's uh, events, and for those of you who were not in Makarsh 50, let me tell you that we received uh, about a half an hour ago a threat uh, of a bomb being placed in Makarsh 50, and we rapidly made the decision that we would not let that kind of intimidation get in the way of important intellectual, scholarly, and uh, uh, collegial work. Uh, 
Although we have no reason to believe that this was a credible threat, and although we know that the threat came from outside the university, which is important to know, uh, discretion appeared to be the better course, and for that reason, we asked all of you to cross Washington Road and to join us here in the Woodrow Wilson School. I am very happy to see all of you made that journey across Washington Road, and you are going to be greatly rewarded for having done so, uh, because you are going to hear one of America's most powerful speakers uh, in a minute, as soon as I am quiet. <laughs> Let me, uh, but first, really honor uh, the organizers of this conference. I told Reverend Jackson uh, a few minutes ago that of all the events that we have on this university campus, the most exciting and the most successful tend to be those that are organized by our extraordinary undergraduates and graduate students. And this conference, in my opinion, is no exception uh, to that. Let me just name for you the students and the organizers who are really responsible for putting together this very exciting program. Ramon Cruz. Maria Shepard. <laughs> David Ginn is over there. Brian Green. Anna Garcia. <laughs> Carlos Soto. Jose Juan Perez, Joy Milligan, and Luis Perez. I would also like to thank Arcadio Diaz, who is a professor of Spanish languages, who uh, worked with the students, and David Figueroa, who's associate director of the program in Latin American Studies. As Ramon has just told you, this is a timely conference that brings together distinguished scholars, political scientists, political activists, legal scholars, uh, lawyers, uh, politicians, and most importantly, of course, students, to really discuss uh, the question of Puerto Ricans' participation in the national fabric of American life. It is timely because of the events that Ramon referred to. It is also timely because of the events of September the 11th and the importance that we continue on this university ca campus to be a place where we can have open and active debate, including debates on issues in which America uh, must face its own uh, limitations. So I am...
I am delighted to be here. I am looking forward to hearing uh, the Reverend Jackson, and I will now turn uh, the program back to Ramon. I'm pleased to introduce now Professor Ken, Kenneth Mills, Director of the Program in Latin American Studies. I am definitely not America's most powerful speaker. <laughs> Good morning. As you heard, I'm Kenneth Mills, a historian of Latin America. And as the director of the program in Latin American Studies at the university, it's my immense pleasure to say two things, very briefly, to kick off these very special days at Princeton. It's a truism to remark that we live in a complex and frequently contradictory world and that the United States of America, with its greatness and its imposing global presence and power, is a major player. But it's more important to add how critical it is for this major player to be as thoughtful and as illuminated as it possibly can be. Contributing to that end of thoughtfulness and illumination is this morning's keynote speaker, and I extend a warm welcome to one of the most reflective and consistently provocative voices, also rather powerful, <laughs> in American public life. The second remark that I wish to make is partly an expression of admiration and gratitude, and partly a bubbling over, a professorial bubbling over of pride. There was a warm spring day last year when Arcadio Diaz-Quinones, my, my, my friend and my colleague, revealed that there was some plans for a meeting about Puerto Rico next year. And Arcadio said to me, Ken, we should hand it over to the students. What do you think? This meeting, its range of speakers, its spectrum of concerns, its gloriously stubborn refusal to be confined within one or another prefabricated box or model of how an academic or a public meeting should proceed. This meeting is student-inspired, it is student-conceived, and it's being orchestrated principally, as you'll see, by students. The program in Latin American Studies and Princeton University are collectively fortunate and considerably enriched through having such restless minds among our student body. The organizers of the meeting invite us to ponder many ideas and realities this weekend, and not least the possible meanings of Puerto Rico and 3.8 million Puerto Ricans. Meanings for themselves and meanings for others. Puerto Rico is by far the largest of the largely invisible, insular American territories which have emerged from modern history. Different than most of Latin America, yet not part of the United States. We make Puerto Rico seem peripheral or merely a frontier issue at our peril. The so-called peripheral, the seemingly insular, reflects upon and is the center. If I may quote from a mind-stretching introduction to a book of essays edited by Christina Duffy Burnett and Burke Marshall, Puerto Rico and its unusual and widely misunderstood relationship to the United States challenges our understanding of who 
we the people are, and questions cherished assumptions about our principles of liberal constitutional government and our ideals of citizenship, federalism, sovereignty, representation, and equality. On behalf of the program in Latin American Studies and of the Department of History, welcome and welcome one of the student organizers and a student, by the way, who is a dear friend of mine and indeed my senior thesis advisee, Ms. Maria Eugenia Shepard. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Maria Shepard Hawkshire, and I'm very pleased to introduce to you today our keynote speaker, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Over the past 30 years, Reverend Jackson has played a central role in several movements for peace, civil rights, gender equality, as well as economic and social justice, becoming one of America's most prominent political figures. Joining the civil rights movement in 1965, Reverend Jesse Jackson began his activism as a student leader and as an organizer for the Southern Christian Leadership Congress, Conference, I'm sorry, assisting Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., founder of People United to Save Humanity, PUSH, and the National Rainbow Coalition, Reverend Jackson is deeply committed to improving, to improving the quality of life and guaranteeing equality of opportunity for disadvantaged minorities. In 1996, both organizations merged into the Rainbow PUSH Coalition under his leadership. The Rainbow PUSH Coalition has led to successful awareness and litigation campaigns it is responsible for the political mobilization of communities of color, the resolution of several labor disputes, the inclusion of minorities in academic institutions and other diverse industries, and the advocacy for environmental justice. Since the beginning of the civil disobedience movement in Vieques, Reverend Jackson has been personally involved with the events taking place in the island municipality. He has visited Vieques and has courageously talked about its deplorable situation in Washington, New York, and Chicago, becoming one of the most important spokespersons for the cause in the United States. Furthermore, his wife, Jacqueline Jackson, was arrested in Vieques for peacefully demonstrating against the presence of the United States Navy in the island. As a highly respected world leader and diplomat, Reverend Desi Jackson has been instrumental in solving international disputes. In the case of Puerto Rico, he has made us aware of the international dimension of the situation in Vieques. Furthermore, Reverend Jackson's longtime commitment to civil, to civil disobedience has served as an inspiration and an example to Puerto Rican activists. In the best tradition of the civil rights movement, civil disobedience is one of the most valuable lessons of the African-American struggle and a very influential model for Puerto Ricans fighting for their liberties. Without further ado, it is my privilege to present to you an honorary citizen of Vieques, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Let me express my uh, thanks and my delight for such a kind and generous introduction to the student organizers of this international conference. Let me express to you 
how delighted I am to be a part of this uh, movement and these meetings uh, today. And uh, to your honor, Madam President, to all of you, I welcome you to um, an experience today in Terrorism 101. It's a source of joy for me to be here at this uh, great and historic university, uh, July 17th, 1960. I tried to use a public library in Greenville, South Carolina, and I was arrested along with seven other students as we saw to break the bonds of rigid racial terrorism in South Carolina. In 1966, in December of 66, Dr. King gave me the assignment to lead the Operation Breadbasket, the economic arm of his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We formed PUSH in December of 19. 71 and Rainbow Push in 95 as we combine the two organizations. So this month we celebrate 35 years of struggle and service and measured success and sacrifice. Our struggle continues. We often hear people say today back in the civil rights days. Such a statement expresses a disconnection beyond one struggle to make this a more perfect union. My son, Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. has just finished a book that's really must reading entitled A More Perfect Union as he deals with the infrastructure of the founding of our country is coming apart at the Civil War and the ongoing struggle to, to heal the wounds and to bridge the gap and to make this a more perfect union. To see America through a door and not merely through a, a keyhole. If indeed our mission is to defend protect and gain civil rights, defend, protect and gain civil rights for all and to even the playing field for all and leave no American behind and to secure peace in our world Inasmuch as the need to defend, protect, and gain civil rights is alive and necessary. Inasmuch as the need to even the playing field is unfinished business. Inasmuch as the struggle for world peace continues, the civil rights movement is alive and necessary. To say back in the civil rights days suggests a an historical disconnect. B it suggests that you are not doing anything because it's over. 
and therefore you are pondering rather than, than acting to fulfill the mission. So today I, I want to talk in, in some measure about the challenge to hold high the dream, a call to honor the American dream. As I thought about the bomb threat today that uh, challenged us to move from one building to another, it's clear it did not come from Ben Layton. It did not come from a cave in Afghanistan. Therefore, to see terrorism uh, as, uh, in its sum total, been latent, is to see this phenomenon through a keyhole and not through a door. In our struggle against this evil spirit of terrorism, these evil acts of terrorism, to reduce it to one man in one cave is to give us a sense of false security. And our quest to make this a more perfect world and a more secure world. For whoever chose to unleash the threat that caused us to move today, we must say to them that you cannot fight intolerance with intolerance. We cannot fight <clears throat> hate with hate. Nor can we end terrorism by being afraid and therefore losing our own sense of dignity and our quest to make the world and to make ourselves more secure. This idea of the American dream is the highest of all dreams nations. It's a dream so high until many men and women of stature choose to settle for less than the dream. They choose to uh, compromise the ideals of the dream. France for the French, Britain for the British, Australia for the Australians, Others are tolerated, are rejected. But this American dream, not bound by one ethnic group, by one religion, by one gender, by one nationality, the highest of, of any nation, a one big tent dream, we all fit under one big tent. Many races, many faces from many places, the American dream. With this splendid invitation, in some sense a mission statement on the invitation, give me your tired your poor, your huddled masses. The price of admission is to yearn to breathe free. This American dream. One big tent. 
and none are reduced to margins because of appearance of a race, religion, or ethnicity. It couldn't be about English only as the arms outstretched toward Europe. It could not be about English only as it contains in many sectors to be a Christian nation. After all, Jesus did not speak English. <laughs> the Ten Commandments were not written in English. The dream transcends not limited to by language. We are a great and a blessed nation. But to be the great nation that we are called to be, we cannot pursue policies of isolation. We cannot be an island of prosperity in an ocean of poverty and pain. We must walk the talk and talk the walk of our principles. We're a great nation, but we're 6% of the human race. We're 6%. The Russian republics are 6%. And Mr. Bush and Mr. Putin meet, they represent one-eighth of the human race. It's a minority meeting. <laughs> in the real world order. English is a minority language in our hemisphere. Two-thirds of our nation, of our hemisphere, speak Spanish. Another 200 million speak Portuguese in, in Brazil. North America is a minority in the Western Hemisphere. Half of all human beings are Asian, half of them are Chinese. And they were not discovered by Nixon. <laughs> one eighth of the human race is Nigerian, one, one eighth is African, one fourth Nigerian. There are a billion people in India, twice more than the U.S. and the Soviet republics combined. I'm trying to suggest to you as we seek to be more inclusive in this rainbow world, in this multicultural world, in this diverse world, we are perhaps the youngest member of the family. Most people in the real world order that you must live with, with your internet and your dot-com world, most people in the world are yellow, brown, black, non-Christian, poor, female, young, and don't speak English. <laughs> yellow, brown, black, poor, female, young, and don't speak English. So there is this challenge to pursue this dream. Slave masters fell short of it. Segregation fell short of it. The Confederates fall short of it. Those who serve a nation God and not a global God, their theology falls short of it. And yet we must not compromise the reach for this dream. 
is bound in some sense by five basic principles. Only one big tent. Equal protection under the law. Equal opportunity. Equal access. A fair share. A concern for the least of these. And while there has been this huge divide, east and west, on matters of race, and while there is a racial divide, there's a north-south gap between the surplus cost and the deficit cost. And it's even wider because at least the racial gap is illegal. The surplus gap and the deficit gap are even wider and legal. So 45 million Americans have no health insurance is legal. Blacks or browns can't use a public facility is illegal. A coal miner dies every six hours from black lung disease. That's illegal. A black or brown or woman denied the right to vote is, is illegal. So at least we've struggled to make the East-West racial divide, gender divide illegal, but the the gap between the surplus and the deficit, often the oppressor and the oppressed, is a legal gap. In one sense, one might argue it's not so much a gap between black and white, and more as between dreamers and dream busters. Between dreamers and ter terrorists who threaten the dream. By locking all the dreamers out. The Bible suggests only the pure in heart shall see God. Which says to me, that unless your heart is pure, your intentions, your thoughts, your will to include other people, all of God's children, that you do not have the capacity to see the other members of the family. God does not belong to America. God does not belong to America. America belongs to God. We sing sometimes with a sense of entitlement. God bless America. But open that song it says, His grace has shown on us. It is by grace, not merely by merit and action that we deserve to be so blessed. And so it's also by the state of America in its humility must bless God. What excites me about being with you today as students is that when you come alive with a sense of conscience and consciousness it is your energy and your ideals to propel us above the limits of politics and parties. Vanity asked the question, is it popular? Politics asked the question, will it, will it work? Can it fit? Can it win? Morality and conscience asked the question, is it right? In the end, if it is not right,
its popularity and its, and its practicality cannot survive the urge of the rightness of the proposition. That's why a woman on the back of a bus in Montgomery, without the right to vote, without a credit card, without a bank account, without the militia, just a woman of conscience, a light in darkness, a minister from a small church can unleash a dynamic that changes the whole world because the power of the power of the power of right and so when young America come alive and choose hope over dope sacrifice over personal gratification Futures over funerals. Inclusion over exclusion. Coalition over isolation. Multilateral over unilateral. When you come alive, the whole world changes. What's great about America is not our DNA, it's our opportunity. We've been blessed to be able to make the world better for my blessings. And so in 1955, when Rosa Parks walked on the bus and the sign above the driver's head, the red colored seat from the red and whites from the front, and those who violate would be punished by law, when she chose not to go to the back, and for that she was arrested. And Dr. King said to her, better be walking dignity than ride in shame. And young America came alive. And people around the world got the message about the value, sanctity of human rights. 1964 students in Greensboro, North Carolina. Sought to get hamburgers, they got handcuffs. Threatened with expulsion from school. They chose dignity over dollars and degrees. Young America came alive. Struggled for the right to vote then. Dr. King said to Lyndon Johnson, we, we deserve the right to vote, and Johnson said, I know you're right, but the practical political issue is that it can't happen. You, we don't have the votes to make, you can't get the right, I know you're going to talk all about how long you've been here, and how difficult life was, and, and you're better on the foreign wars, I know all that, but the practical fact is, and then Swarna, Goodman, and trained the two Jews and the black, spill their non-negotiable blood. It was through their crucifixion that the resurrection occurred. <coughs> Meg Evers was killed. The power of sacrifice and innocent blood swole up on America and the right to vote did not come from the White House or the Congress those are ceremonies. It was written in blood and co-signed in ink because young America came alive. Ending Jim Crow. Securing the right to vote. Raising tough questions about war and peace came the conscience and sacrifice indeed of a young determined America. As we came from one building to another and across Washington a street that suggests that none of us are safe and that all of us are safe. 
God's security does not come from finding old man somewhere in a cave. It comes from fighting for the dream every day, everywhere. Yes, even on our campuses. The more I thought about this issue of Puerto Rico, the acres, what a challenge, what an opportunity. My wife was jailed in Puerto Rico for 10 days this summer. It was to be a rather, compared to the routine arrest, but if she was arrested, the women had to subject themselves to bend over and be touched by civilians and cough. And she refused to cough. She refused to be strip searched and bent over. And therefore she broke the rhythm of the oppression. She broke the rhythm of the terrorism. It taking place in the Puerto Rican jail and they say you have a chance to not subject yourself to this, just back away. She said, you have a right to be decent, to be fair. Another risk people trying to stop unjust, unnecessary bombing. And for that in the chain, she's put in jail for, for 10 days. As I sat through the court process and listened to judge to her now, we're going to let you go after 10 days. They could keep you in here for six months if I choose to. I looked around and in that courtroom and all up and down the hall, 90 plus percent of those there were Spanish speaking American citizens. But everything in the court was in English. Puerto Ricans were strangers at home. Every statement made by a judge, every court order, made in English in Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans estranged at home. It's something called colonialism. It's called occupation. It's called political terror. It's antithetical to democratic principles. Puerto Rico, Vieques, and the Isle of Puerto Rico. We took the land. <clears throat> we moved people from their land against their will. And then used their land for bombing against their will. The people, not so much against the Navy, the, the strategic commanders in Puerto Rico, they get the Navy, the, the Navy bombing, destruction of the environment, the phosphorus in the water, the highest incidences of cancer, high infant mortality, nervous conditions, children fretting and shaking. We drop live ammunition in their land against their will. Yet our citizens, Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Our foreign policy must not be foreign to our values. 
emergency politics must not suspend the Constitution. Fear must not transcend reason in public policy. Laws not the favor of leaders must guide public policy. In Puerto Rico you have usurpation of rights, suspension of democracy, in the name of, but we got to have it. There's no place like it. We, we, we know it's not right, but we got to have it. So we usurp rights and we suspend the Constitution. It's promise. And that's what Ashcroft is saying to us today. We, we, we're afraid and we got to find them. And so civil rights and civil liberties. Because we're afraid we, we got to put in to one office the FBI and give it the power to determine who is the suspect and who's not. We got to hear what lawyers and clients are talking about. We got the eavesdrop. We got, we got the wiretap. We got to have the right to go on campuses without notice. We have to have the right to make those who question our authority suspect. And thus, Dr. King was called by Hoover a threat to national security. And thus, Bobby Kennedy White tapped his phones and eavesdropped and trailed him because of fear of communism and now fear of terrorism. Civil rights, civil liberties, too long gained, too hard to earn, must not be traded away. The caveman must not take away the promise of our democracy. Ashcroft cannot take it away either. We must not give up essentially America, driven by fear. We must go forward by hope, not backwards by fear. That's why someone said, give me liberty, give me death. I would choose death for usurpation of my liberties. After all, liberty is worth dying for, living for. That is our challenge today. The dream, the one big tent dream. Enough of gunboat diplomacy. Manifest destiny. Banana republic. Money interest. Short term pleasure, long term pain. Panama. Reagan said there is no Panama Canal. There's an American Canal in Panama. Arrogance. Philippines, very poor people. Clark, Clark Air Force Base, we might violate you, but at least we give you some money. At least we give you some jobs. At some point in the maturity, people said, give us dignity over dollars. Our dignity is non-negotiable. And what it is, the Philippines, the Isle in Japan, or whether it is Panama or the Acres. In the end, dignity always outlasts convenience in dollars. The pain of democracy over short-term convenience and occupation. Puerto Rico, a de facto colony. 
Not just a race. Puerto Ricans are a people. A culture. Basically a Spanish language speaking people. Puerto Ricans are also fundamentally U.S. citizens. Not protected by the American tent. We fight for Puerto Rican sovereignty. And human rights. As we pursue the American dream. The Vieques bombing. They'll have live ammunition again in January. The Vieques bombing does not make us more secure. It makes us more resented. We do not need to bomb Vieques. We need to build bridges. The Vieques bombing is unnecessary. Humble to the environment. Humble to the people. Presented by the people and voted for by the people to stop it. And we said in effect, your vote does not matter, we have to have it. What happens to you, my dear sister? Someone, you say no and someone says, I know you said no, I heard you say no, but I have to have it. That what, is that the essence of a rape? Against somebody's will? Violating their sense of values, their sense of self-respect? You really can't say, I know that you're in pain, but I got to have it. <clears throat> you can't say to people, because I know it, it traumatizes you, but we got to have you. We cannot operate in that way and maintain the high road of moral standards. It's more taxation without representation and alienation. I've been blessed to go on four occasions to bring Americans back home from foreign jails. I determined in time that our foreign policy and my campaigns kind of five basic principles in our foreign policy at its best. International law, human rights, self-determination, economic justice, and one set of rules. International law, human rights, self-determination, economic justice, and one set of rules. You do notice that when we were at the height of our arrogance, there was a, a conference against racism in South Africa. A country still seeking to overcome the impact of such a structure that we supported. We pushed the conference aside. We said, unless you tell us before the conference begins how it must end, unless you, can, unless you convince us that you will not make a statement that's, that is uh, insulting to Israel, we will not attend. The fact is, that the way to stop insults toward Israel, the way to make Palestinians more secure, is to be in the midst thereof. You can't get peace through faxes and emails and threats. It comes from negotiation. And so because we could not get a guarantee of the language of a resolution, 
We sent a low-level delegation late, never took a seat and left early. They had a big press conference. <laughs> and we called that diplomacy. And then September 11th. And we said, by the way, uh, you do know that we really planned to announce a Palestinian state, but it just came out now. We're not collectively that ignorant. <laughs> we had to go uh, to shift gears. Somebody said, what happened after September 11th? Well, we went from, we went from isolation to coalition real fast. I was in Europe in March, and Europeans were saying, but honor the kill of the treaty. Environmental policy. Honor, stop capital punishment. Don't, don't revive Star Wars. And Dr. Ryan said, but uh, we go our way, and you stay back there. Well, we would not say that to Europe today. We wouldn't say no to the conference on racism in Africa today. Because we changed our policy September the 12th that view of the world must include Puerto Rico as well we have a new policy based upon coalition as opposed to isolation because now we say everybody, everybody matters everybody counts the four times I brought Americans back home I, I wrote in reflection Always four characteristics in Syria and Cuba and Iraq and Yugoslavia was that in part I did it because the American president was not allowed to do it. <coughs> Someone asked me when I brought Goodman back home from Syria to Rem Jackson, um, um, what did you do of the good Goodman back Mr. Reagan had that done? That's how I asked for him. In each instance, whether Syria or Cuba or Iraq or Yugoslavia, well, number one, we did not have diplomatic ties with those countries. Two, we had limited shared information with them, our intelligence. Three, we underestimated the role of the, of the clerics in those cultures. And four, there was abounding poverty that did not matter to us. And so you go to a... Uh, a G8 conference of the world's eight richest countries come together and we're always king of the hill, giving more aid, more trade, more money, more guns. But you go to the non-aligned conference, where seven-eighths of the human race is, we don't show up. And the majority says unkind things about us. We say, but behind, no matter how much you say about us at these conferences, we have the power, we have the money, and we have the military. But then, on September 11th, our worst fears came upon us. Our money towers were attacked. And our military, the Pentagon, was stabbed in the heart. And we felt traumatized. A lesson to be learned is we must not merely be against being terrorized, we must be against terrorism. We cannot merely be against being terrorized. We must be against terrorism. And so, you know this anthrax scare is not coming from 
a cave in Afghanistan. You're not some of this anti-union, anti-Americanism. You know that the bombing of the building in Oklahoma City and Ruby Ridge and the bombing of the Olympus in Atlanta, Georgia, targeting Planned Parenthood clinics, didn't come from Afghanistan. Homegrown terrorism. It takes less courage to fight the terrorism over there than to fight it at home. We must all fight terrorism wherever it manifests itself. We must first define it. Define terrorism. Define the suspect. We can all be in march and beat of the same drummer. Terrorism. What did Britain call those who led the Boston Tea Party? Terrorists. Talk to me, somebody. <laughs> what did Africaners call Mandela? The religious, fanatic, Christian fundamentalists were slave masters. Slave masters were. What were they? Now we got homeland ministers looking for terror. We're going to round up all the people who look Middle Eastern. We got to round up some Klansmen. Because they are terrorists. Instead, the inclination to lock up civil rights leaders, not Klan. Because of the politics of who's a terrorist and who is not. last point is this to you as a essentially Americana there's a profound spiritual notion here about how we feel about this situation do not our hearts grieve as we face the pain of the attack the, fu the funerals the orphans Those will be without relatives at this Christmas season. But in this Woodrow School, as we think global, as we who theologically think of a God of the universe, Jefferson put it this way. He said, I benefited from slavery. I have property given to me because of it. I have unlimited privileges because of slavery. I can vote. I have advantage because of, of slavery. I'm a rich man because of slavery. And our economy is growing because of slavery. He said, but then I'm also a, a Christian, man of God. And when I think about slavery on the one hand, and think that God is just on the other. I tremble for my country. If you just think nationalistically and just think racially, then there is no equation. It's just, it's good to me, it works for me, it's alright. But he said, when I, when I think about slavery on the one hand, good to me, good for me, and I think that God is just on the other. I tremble.
And we think nationalistically. It lends itself to viewing the world through a key or not through a door. We perceive the sense of false assurance, even a sense of arrogance, because we think too small and look too, too narrow a door. 12,000 orphans in New York because of the bombings on September 11th. 12,000 orphans. We must be against that. But there are 500,000 orphans in Afghanistan. Does God belong to America? Does America belong to God? There are orphans in vehicles. There's no hospital in vehicles. Pregnant women have to catch a boat and ride a boat across the mainland from vehicles. They're born with deformed babies. Is God the God of vehicles too? Of Afghanistan too? You do know as we fight this war on drugs, and we ought to fight that war, you, you, do, know, you do know that the number one drug dealers in the world are the North Alliance. You, you are aware that we are bombing caves and not poppy seeds. You do know that the flow of heroin comes from the Northern Alliance. You do know that we have just given the drug dealers a country. You do know that as we seek to make this a more perfect world, that we must, in fact, be consistent in these principles, whether it's fighting to free vehicles. We can talk to China and can't talk to Cuba. As we seek to make this a more perfect world, a more perfect union, then we cannot ignore vehicles or Cuba or the consequences of action. There are these profoundly spiritual notions require of us a kind of vision. Whenever these walls come down, we always are made better. Our worst fears never are realized. We didn't know how good baseball could be till everybody could play. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't know how, how exciting the Olympics could be and the women could play as well. When these walls come down in Brazil, we always get better. When Puerto Rico is more secure, we're all more secure. So we fight on the basic principle. Joe put it this way. He said... My worst fears have come upon me. In a certain metaphor, Job was likened unto America. Job um, was rich, famous, endowed, powerful, popular. In him were all the ideals, his family, his property, his cattle. And yet, there were sublimated fears. Because on our best day, we know we're one step from tragedy. We know we're here at least as much by grace as anything else. And so, there are these fears that we never quite bring up. And so, he, he looked up one day and he had lost his property. Could handle that. Lost his cattle. 
Kind of like Enron, something was falling. <laughs> he lost his children. I thank and bless God for our children. I'm, I'm convinced, Sister Shirley, that um, I would live as other people want to live, but I would, I would die today for my children. I would take a bullet for them right now. I made that decision, that conviction. I, I, I want to live long and productive, but I don't want to look down in the face of one of my children. I, I, want, I want them to carry on. I, and so a sublimated fear is that one of them might go first. I, I, I don't, know, don't know how to handle that. Job said, my worst fear is so that my children are dead. And then his wife shows up talking trash. <laughs> you thought you were so much, look at you now. Then his friends came harassing, say, man, you're not all that you thought you were. Give up. Curse God and die. They came giving bad advice. And then it broke out in anthrax. The body broke out in sores. <laughs> Property gone. Wife harassing him. Friend giving him bad advice. Children dead. Property gone. He said, um, my worst fears have come upon me. About ten chapters later, he said, Though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Beyond the politics of this step, as we fight the free acres, as we fight for ending occupation, as we put bread and bombs and care packages together in Afghanistan, five million people dying a year from lack of drinkable water. As we face the threat of anthrax, a hundred million will have age in the next four years. As we seek to make this world more secure, there must be a trust deeper than pain. A commitment to fight more fundamental than instant gratification. There must be a confidence. Sure, we were knocked down up. September 11th. But then, as Donald McClurkin said, we fall down. We get back up again. And the ground is no place for a champion. As we fight to make this world more secure, as we like to use the advantage God has given us, the advantage is we're called not to be superior, but to be of superior service and keep hope alive and make the world better. That's our calling. That's our challenge. Let's honor the American dream. God bless you. take your seats two things I promise I would answer two or three questions but also uh, Rainbow Push is uh, we broadcast our community meeting every Saturday morning 
But you might also, on our website, we are www.rainbowpush.org to stay in touch with our activities around the, the country and around the world. And if you're a student or members of the press, if you want to ask a question, we'll take about three or four questions and then on off to the wonderful uh, city of Chicago. Media students, either one. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Reverend Jackson, do you have any thoughts in terms of opportunities uh, to collaborate with, say, the Rainbow Coalition and perhaps for Reagans and other Hispanic groups to improve the quality of life here and begin, you know, uh, forming closer alliances so that together we can really open up the vision of the rest of the Actually, Dennis Rivera of 1199 in New York is the co-chair of our board. We very much intend to collaborate. Uh, I took Cesar Chavez off of his last fast because we work with farm workers. Uh, we've sought to build coalitions of political activism. It was that coalition that, that won for Harold Washington in Chicago in 1983, for example. We fight together for, for bilingual education. Uh, every critical issue of economic significance, uh, we share the same basic needs. Uh, the reason why we also include whites in that agenda is because most poor people in America are neither black nor brown. They're white, they're female, and they're young. That's what I mean by the north-south divide, not just the east-west divide. We put a lot of focus on, on ethnic kinship, but there are those simply who, when they work, their best is not good enough. Uh, that's why I'm disturbed about this uh, trickery, trickle-down theory. Well, before September 11th, we had a trillion and a half dollar surplus, and uh, we chose to give half of it back to the top 1%. A wheelbarrow full of money rolled it down the hill and called it heavy lifting, which didn't quite come across to me. And now we want to do something under Reagan, President Reagan and Secretary of uh, Treasury Reagan. This was a bit absurd for... The corporation that pays for those taxes and use them in the loopholes. So set up something called the alternative minimum tax. Mr. Bush wants to repeal that legislation and give a 15-year rebate retroactive to IBM a billion four and Ford a, 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 a billion and to Enron. In other words. If that legislation is successful, the generals will be paying more income taxes than IBM and, and Ford. That is not sound economics. There must be some commitment to build bottom up. We cannot celebrate Christian Christmas as looking at Santa Claus. It's a bottom up proposition. It was an at risk baby born as a minority on the Roman occupation. You cannot go into this season and not look at the, the, the reason for the season. And, and, and where our, our, our best values are not in giving Herod a tax break. It's in somehow giving Mary and Joseph some place to stay and take care of the babies. That's in some sense, those are the values that we must espouse. So blacks and Puerto Ricans and Hispanics and whites and women, people who want to even the plan to make this a more just country, I would urge us to, to, to embrace those economic values. Yes, sir? 
Reverend Jackson, I have a question, I guess in light of the current economic times, most students like me are, are very much afraid. Uh, you know, our intentions are we can't get a job uh, anywhere, but that of course isn't true. How would you encourage young people to take advantage of the service opportunities that many of them collected uh, in these boom times and going to banks and consultancies and things like that? How do we... What do you mean by service opportunities? Well, teaching, uh, oh, working for nonprofits. I thought you were talking about joining the army. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was trying to, get, I was trying to connect you. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> I'm with the program. I'm just trying to find out what you're talking about. <laughs> well, we are not going to revive our economy top down, making. If you're rich, people richer. Uh, I took a plane from Chicago to Boston last week. There was 20 people on the plane. And from Boston down to New York, 10 people on the plane. And the execs at IBM and Ford and Enron, they will not be flying those planes. So giving them a lot of money back will not be a stimulus for the airline and aviation and tourist industry. Why can't we think for a moment just stop it, operative word, think. And um, suppose uh, one-third of the stimulus went to travel vouchers. A thousand dollar max for six months. And people would be going to those airports and train stations and bus terminals. And cab drivers would be driving the cabs and the flight attendants and security workers and pilots would be working. We had 260,000 hotel workers September the 11th, and that's down to 110. And so if one-third of that money went into uh, putting tourism and, and travel in motion, you'd have airlines, buses, trains, hotels, the welfare, the work, bottom up. Second tier should go to those companies that got hit hardest, where you got frozen receivables and no payables after September the 11th. They need to be jumped. Then another third to those who have no infrastructure, those uh, who are well had to work but no work and no transportation to get there. And so we keep, we say, everything changed on the September 11th. Well, our ideology has not changed. The idea that you make a few people richer and they will give the remains to the rest of us will not work. And so I submit to you, yes, if we invest in our infrastructure, we can put America back to work. Because we do need railway. We do need bridges. We do need first-class schools and first-class teachers. Option being first-class jails and second-class schools. Where we breed the jail industrial complex. Today, um... African Americans are 12% of the population and 55% of the jail population. And Hispanics are like 20%. So blacks and browns are 75% of the jail industrial complex today. Jails for profits is somehow beneath the dignity of the American dream. And so we know if we choose prenatal care, head start and daycare on the front side, it's going to reduce jail care and welfare on the backside. The key to that is teachers. Teachers. 
teachers who can, who have capacity, will be a factor. Now we got some scheme where you get education money based upon real estate. So the wealthy public schools are like private schools. And often in the city schools, the rural schools are like dungeons and under capacity. And so predictably, one sends students to Princeton or Yale. And one sends students somewhere to work in McDonald's or not work at all because we're not even the playing field. I am never surprised when blacks and browns do well under Princeton conditions. I'm amazed when we survive under two sets of rules. Why are blacks and browns so successful, really so dominant in football, basketball, baseball, track, golf, tennis? Why? In those areas where you have to have the most difficult combination of cognitive and motor skills, where you're going to be the best on the, in the world, why are we the best of the best in the world? Where it's so hard to achieve. Because whenever the plan field is even, and the rules are public and the goals are clear, we can make it. We must work to even the playing field. If America has done this well, but some of our best players not on the field, our best days in front of us. That's my hope. Our best days in front of us. Because we've done very well with some of our best players not on the field. I say, even the field that all of us on it. Last one. One, two, three, and that's it. Yes, ma'am. First of all, I reflected on how little most Americans mainland know about vehicles. You know, so free press but not informative press. Because if most Americans knew about it, they would resent it. They don't know about Puerto Rico dash vehicles. Secondly, I noticed children in the schools, when they would drop those bombs, live ammunition, but sometimes shadow windows in schools and children would have emotional problems because they have to get hold of the desk because of that. Then I notice how the, um, the environmentalists, and I might add that uh, uh, attorney Robert Kennedy is one of the best at, at this, just how the, the earth and water is being destroyed. How fishmen cannot fish anymore and how you have people simply there bewildered. But you know, they voted a few months ago to stop the bombing. We ignored it. You just really cannot, in principle, rebuild Afghanistan with the Northern Alliance and hear them and don't hear Puerto Ricans. These are Americans saying, we with you. We don't mind you having a naval strategic command, but don't bomb us. What more can they say? When they rise up and fight back, then we say the terrorists. <laughs> I say that we can, we can stop that kind of violent rebellion by building bridges on the front side and not walls. Yes, sir. I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, sir. Do you feel that there's any way of convincing the current administration that 
stop them, or should we kind of put our hopes, uh, you know, four years or eight years down the road? Um, well, I'm convinced that we're going to stop the bombing. There's no place else left to bomb, so <laughs> no place else to bomb. The point now, it seems to me, is we got to, if Mr. Bush is correct, this is a long-term struggle. And there may be eight terrorist cells in our own country. And there are other terror cells around the country. Even if we get bin Laden today, we cannot sing happy days are here again because of the very nature of this phenomenon. That's my, my first point. Secondly, to be announcing once we get him, Saddam, you next. Do we think that while we're announcing we're coming, he's sitting back crocheting kind of... <laughs> can't wait for the day that we arrive? I mean, I mean, why all of this kind of uh, atmosphere of of you next, you next, you next. Did not we find out in this drive that the first three weeks Mr. Bush could not hit the target, not because he was not willing to fight, not because we should not fight when hit the way we were hit, but he did not know who to hit, which suggested a an intelligence deficit and a diplomatic disconnect. So what we had to do real fast was to start intelligence sharing and coalition building and connecting. Now the logic of that is that we're going to build these bridges. What bridges should be two-way? What do our partners need in this relationship? Well, five million are dying a year from lack of drinking of water. I mean, we should drop some water without dropping the bomb. 100 million will have AIDS in four years. Maybe they need roads and bridges and medicine and sex education and adequate diets. I mean, what a great moment to make this a more perfect world. It's clear that if we have all this power and don't have relationships, that we're vulnerable. That we cannot be an island of prosperity and power in the ocean of plenty and uncertainty. We'll be just like, uh, what's that giant in the island of Lilliput? Remember that's Gulliver's novels, right? As long as we're big and strong and walking around, the little Lilliputians are ducking and dodging, but when we slip and fall, they run and get them some strings and tie us up. We must be a strong, friendly ally to those who are down now. And, and that's what I thought the first few weeks meant. That we had to realize that we had to shift from isolation to coalition and from unilateral to multilateral. I would say, last, that you who are students cannot sit back and just watch civil liberties erode, erode and you think it's about them, not about you. Because as soon as you start protesting something you don't like, leaders on this campus are going to be eavesdropped on, going to be infiltrated. And right now, Mr. Ashcroft has the power to take you out of your dumb to a room. Without, without any questions asked. He has the power that's being applied to maliciousness will not stop there. It could very well be applied in next year's elections, for example. Whenever you give the Attorney General this much power and the FBI and the CIA and their politicians, they want to perpetuate themselves in order. 
They can use IRS and a right-wing press for propaganda. And protests will have no place in our democracy. Nor will change. Could it happen here? Would it happen to uh, Garnett? It happened to Marcus Garvey. Could it happen here? It happened to labor leaders. And the third is, could it happen here? Something called McCarthy. Could it happen here? Have Martin Luther King Jr. We must not risk liberty, even for fear. Even fear must not jeopardize our sense of liberty, because that's essential for America. We are great not because we're afraid, but because we're bold and audacious, and because we're free. We must fight for that freedom. Last one, and I'm being threatened. <laughs> you know, I went to the airport yesterday in um, Atlanta. And I got stopped five times. They stopped me at the door. I mean, at the, at the, at the, at the entranceway. They made us open up our clothes at the counter. We had to go through security check. There was no security check before the gate and then at the gate. Had to stop five times in Atlanta. And then in Houston, we went through the door check, security uh, check, and we got down there and they took us off the plane. Now, we have gone from uh, too loose to being ridiculous. We must fight for our freedom. So I have to go to Newark Airport today early because I'm going to have to go through four or five uh, hoops. Last one. Doc, best say something? Last, <laughs> last, yes, sir. Well, uh, if the against us voted in July, 68.2 voted for the bombings to stop immediately. Uh, it was the first democratic election of the bombings uh, for the last 60 years when, when they have been bombed. And uh, the U.S. is, is considering the, the election, they, they have now, uh, they're now considering re restarting the bombings with live ammunition. And uh, for the past 60 years, since they haven't had the democratic right of expressing their opinion on what's going on, they have been um, doing civil disobedience on and off. Uh, it has intensified for the past three years. I, I just wanted to hear your opinion on how effective you think that the civil disobedience has been in uh, bringing this issue to the, to the forefront of the, of the federal agenda. And uh, what do you think should be done in the future to try to speed up the, uh, the resolution of this problem? Civil disobedience, nonviolent, has had the impact of mass education. Today, most Americans know about vehicles because of the demonstrations and the civil disobedience. And so I would say to you that nonviolent direct action works and it matters. To shrug your shoulders in disbelief does not work. You must not feel a profound sense of um, hopelessness that drives you into helplessness. That's why. I challenge students to, as we looked at the Vietnam War and made critical judgments, we're fighting other wars now. We must make critical judgments. And I submit to you that fighting to end the bombing in vehicles. Bombing vehicles is unnecessary, is harmful, decreased resentment rather than friends. And that should be reason enough. Students, let me express my thanks to you for allowing me to share with you today. And to you, Madam President, thank you very much. Please remain in your seats, please. <laughs> okay. um,
please, uh, if everybody could leave in the right door, uh, Reverend Jackson has to has to leave very quick to catch an airplane. Um, for everybody, we are having lunch in the Third World Center. So we would like all of, to invite all of you to join us there. And uh, the afternoon session on migration and citizenship is going to be delayed after, right after the launch, okay? So please join us. Thank you. And remember, tonight, education and citizenship, tomorrow, law and citizenship, and later on, Vieques, okay? Thank you very much. Uh,